Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. Donald Trump and the History of Spin, David Greenberg. Obama had a Twitter feed from very early in his presidency, but when did he ever use it in a memorable fashion? Trump, by nature, was given to a style that's impulsive, emotional, angry, reactive, all qualities that Twitter is built for. Well, I'm one of those historians who all year long was being called about Trump and saying, oh, you know, there are parallels, there are precedents, and now sort of find myself saying we're in uncharted waters. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? Before we start this show, a plug for subscriptions. If you're listening to us on iTunes, please rate us and subscribe to us. So, Jim, I'm going to read you something our guest wrote. The people's choice is prone to intemperate remarks and hot-headed declarations to the delight of his followers and the frustration of party leaders. Well, it certainly sounds like a description of Donald Trump. Well, it is, but it's also a reference to somebody else, Teddy Roosevelt, who broke with his party after he'd already been president and ran for the White House as an independent back in 1912. So we're joined by David Greenberg, professor of history, journalism, and media studies at Rutgers University. David is the author of Republic of Spin, an inside history of the American presidency. So, David, let's jump right in. Many people, and and not just Democrats, are horrified by Donald Trump. Is he like nobody who came before, or are there some parallels? Well, I'm one of those historians who all year long was being called about Trump and saying, oh, you know, there are parallels, there are precedents, and now sort of find myself saying we're in uncharted waters. Um, So clearly there's a lot that's going on that we haven't seen before, but nothing is truly unprecedented. And Theodore Roosevelt actually is a good place to start. There is a little bit of TR in Trump, if you will. In what way? Well, Roosevelt was the first president who really understood the presidency and also running for president as an act of celebrity. He was a showman. He understood that it was necessary to get attention by dramatizing the news, by dramatizing your positions, what you want to say. It wasn't enough just to sort of make a policy speech to 
put out your positions, you had to draw attention to yourself day in, day out, stay in the spotlight. And he was really the first modern master of that. And one of the things I found really interesting in your book is the way that you show that over time, the White House, among other things, became a publicity shop. Yeah, the bully pulpit. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is sort of the story of the book is the emergence of the White House spin machine. And I start the story with Teddy Roosevelt, even though I have a few chapters showing how there were foundations built by McKinley in Cleveland. But Theodore Roosevelt's the one who first hires press agents. Theodore Roosevelt stages publicity stunts. He goes to the bottom of Long Island Sound in one of those old submarines to demonstrate the need to have submarines for the Navy. He is doing— And it was a rough ride, as I recall. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly, <laughs> for the rough rider. Um, it, I mean, this is his, his M.O. He's, he's always trying to think about how he can keep the attention on his project and how he can get the news framed the way he wanted it to be framed. See, in the 19th century— you had these partisan newspapers, and it was all about kind of the editorial opinion. And starting in the late 19th century, early 20th century, you have this new attention to news, factual reported news. And so the president, Roosevelt, sees an opportunity to get that news reported the way he wants it. You know, it's not just about what's on the editorial pages. What's going to matter is what's in the headlines on the front pages. Now, all of this change coincided with the presidency becoming more powerful. Right. I mean, this, in a way, is what he does to make the presidency more powerful. People forget that in the Constitution, it's Congress that is Article One, and the presidency is Article Two. We today, of course, think of the presidency as the primary branch, but it was Congress that was kind of the first branch. And over time, that power shifts from Congress to the presidency, partly in response to the Industrial Revolution and the Gilded Age. These big economic and social problems aren't going to be solved except with a strong hand from Washington. And so Roosevelt does this. He brings power to the office by reaching out to public opinion. And by mobilizing public opinion behind the presidency, he can push his agenda through. That's the new turn. If you think about those 19th century presidents, one reason we don't remember many of them is they didn't do this. Right. You know, They right. were content to let Congress pass the legislation and they would sign it. That was basically their job. Over time, the White House got more professionalized as a PR machine, among other things. But the names for what we call public relations have changed over time, right? I mean, nobody uses the word propaganda anymore. Right. So in the early days with Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, they used words like publicity in a very unselfconscious way. Publicity wasn't just kind of self-aggrandizing attention to yourself. It was making things public, taking what had been private or behind closed doors and bringing it to the public. So eventually those terms get tainted, and uh, Steven Pinker calls it the euphemism treadmill. So, you know, we, we replace the name of something, but because it still refers to a practice that is unsavory in some way, the new term ultimately takes on negative connotations too. So over time, the terms for propaganda, publicity, keep getting replaced. Uh, today we use the term spin, which has negative connotations, but also has, I think, a kind of lighthearted 
playful feel to it. So George Lakoff came up with some very powerful ideas about how to get political ideas accepted. He talked about the power of framing. Right. It's the idea of how you actually present the issue in the first place so that instead of, you know, socialized medicine, you know, it's universal health care. You know, the Republicans for many years were very good about this with the pollster Frank Luntz. Instead of the estate tax, they chose to call it the death tax. And that was useful in helping to turn public opinion against what really should be a very popular tax because it would affect a very small number of rich people and yield a lot of revenue for the government, but it came to be seen as taxing death. And there's that fascinating poll that shows that the majority of people are in favor of the Affordable Care Act, but a small majority is against Obamacare. <laughs> right. It's the same thing, but just framed differently. Over the years, how has spin changed? Well, one, we've seen a whole host of technological developments. So uh, as technology arrives on the scene, whether it's public opinion polling, whether it's radio or television, politicians scramble to figure out how best to exploit it and, and use it to put across their message. And, and uh, we've certainly had that with, with Donald Trump using Twitter in a different way than any politician before him. Right. And it's a great example because, so to go back for one minute to radio, Calvin Coolidge, who I also wrote a book about, gets no credit as being kind of the father of radio, even though Coolidge was the one who had the first nomination acceptance address on the radio, the first inauguration speech, a, a number of other big radio speeches. But all he did was really give the speech he was going to give anyway. What FDR did was reconceive what should the radio speech be. It was shorter, it was in colloquial language, people listened in their living rooms, and it took on a very different feel. And this was the fireside chat. And so we remember Roosevelt's fireside chats far more than we remember Coolidge's radio-born inauguration address. So you cut to the present time. Obama had a Twitter feed from very early in his presidency. But when did he ever use it in a memorable fashion? Trump by nature, was given to a style that's impulsive, emotional, um, angry, reactive, all qualities that Twitter is built for, <laughs> that Twitter mm -hmm. honors and privileges. So there was a meeting of the man and the medium. His style was perfect for Twitter, and Twitter was perfect for his style. And so I think given this moment in history, 2016, that helped him get the attention he needed to vault to the top of the pack. And, of course, he was benefited by the fact that most of his ideas would fit in 140 characters. <laughs> yeah. He, he, the short bursts, they did capture something pithy. That was what he was playing on, and it was kind of emotional politics. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Uh, that worked for him. We're speaking with a historian, David Greenberg. George W. Bush had Karl Rove. Barack Obama had David Axelrod and David Pluff. And now we have Steve Bannon right there in the White House. When did handlers, political strategists, become so public? They're there from the beginning. In 1920, Albert Lasker, who's the biggest advertising man in the country, comes in to run Warren Harding's campaign. But try to find Lasker's name in the newspapers in 1920. Even though he had a huge hand in shaping the Harding campaign, he's barely there at all. It really starts to come in in the 70s. Um, By 1988, Time magazine has a cover, The Year of the Handlers. And handler became the word in 88, I think largely because of Dan Quayle. George Bush Sr.'s vice presidential choice was kind of widely seen as a bad choice, not ready for prime time. So they need to have these consultants around him making sure he didn't slip up. And so the handlers were promoted to even greater prominence. I think at the same time, there was also a bigger awareness of politics as a business as a, or almost like a sport with people very, very interested in the strategies of campaigns, not in the content of the policy, especially the press, which, of course, lives on this stuff. Yeah. So starting in the late 60s is when these consultants start forming their own political businesses. In 1952, Eisenhower does the first televised 30-second spots in the campaign, but he goes to a Madison Avenue firm to do it. What starts to change is you start having these political firms that do just the political consulting, or if they do business consulting, that's the side project, but politics is their bread and butter. So people like, well, Roger Ailes comes up this way, Joe Napolitano, David Garth. There's sort of a whole generation, and now we've had two or three generations, and so who you get as your consultant is announced, and that's kind of a signal. Got a big-name consultant. You're going to run this kind of campaign. So it's signaling people in the know that you're a major player in the upcoming race. But we want politicians to try to convince us, right? Right, and I, I don't argue that spin is a bad thing at all. In fact, I think spin sort of gets a bad rap. I almost uh, called this book Two Cheers for Spin. Uh, in fact, I think it's naive to imagine a political world without spin. The fact that we do have a no-spin zone, but it's run by an incredibly contentious, opinionated, (laughs) provocative Bill O'Reilly. I've been on that show, I can attest. What what would the no-spin politics even look like? I mean, maybe the Associated Press, but we expect a certain amount of argument and contention and parry and thrust in our politics. That's what makes democracy vital. It's also important that we be able to call someone out when they lie or distort or go too far. But certainly we wouldn't want an arid, rigidly fact-based politics that leaves no room for argument or play. Tough question. What's the difference between a spin and a lie? 
Yeah, this is something I've been thinking a lot about. There is a wide berth of partial information, uh, slanted information that we typically allow in politics. We understand implicitly that a politician is not going to go out there and make a 15-minute argument for why we should go to war followed by a 15-minute argument for why we shouldn't go to war and then leave it to you, (laughs) the viewers at home, to dial in and vote. A politician makes an argument. He slants the case. Hopefully it's slanted within the realm of defensibly truthful claims, and when they don't, we call them out on it. So the kinds of massaging of language, what Woodrow Wilson called grazing the truth, that's that spin. The lie is when you really go beyond the accepted boundaries of what's true and false. When Nixon lied about his involvement in Watergate, you know that was something that no amount of spin could salvage. And yet we have to be aware that we're going to disagree, that partisanship and loyalty and personal attachments play a role. So what I see as a lie, somebody else might say, well, no, that's really just spin. And we we have to argue about it to establish exactly what falls into what category. You know, there's been a lot of pressure for people to call out what they see as lies explicitly. But you wrote a really interesting column in Politico arguing that we should be careful about that, that journalists may lose some of their... Um, credibility. Their credibility, their, their wiggle room, in mm-hmm. a sense, if they appear to be too anxious to call everything that's somewhat dubious a lie. Exactly right. Look, if you're an opinion columnist and you want to call it a lie, fine. If you write for the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or you're on CNN or CBS, you are expected to be objective and that means also um, making sure that your writing is believed by as wide a spectrum of people as possible and that's a particular problem right now is listening to another ACAST podcast with uh, Ari Fleischer who uh-huh. I thought made a very fair point about journalists being potentially biased against Trump because the vast majority of the Washington press corps voted for Hillary Clinton. They did not vote for Donald Trump, and they have, quote-unquote, greeted his administration with a very different point of view than they would have done if the result of the election had been different. Right. Although I would draw a distinction there. You know, that is something perhaps you could say about any Republican president. And yet, journalists, by and large who work for, again, mainstream, objective, or aspirationally objective, as I like to say, uh, newspapers and outlets, they know that the rewards come not from landing a punch or getting their political opinion into the paper, but for them, the rewards come from digging up scoops, information, uncovering secrets. There's a professional ethos, if you're a reporter, that it's about getting the scoop, not about advancing a liberal agenda. And, and so, in, indeed, the, the, the resignation of Mike Flynn came after a story from the Washington Post. Right, and that's reporting. And that is something that I think would have been done about any new administration, Republican, Democrat, Trumpist. Um, you know, that said, I do think a lot of people, not only reporters, do see Trump's Um, taking office as something like a national emergency, where it doesn't mean that all bets are off, but it does mean that new 
steps are needed, new strategies are needed to make sure that the newspapers can continue to keep the public well informed. And when you have an administration that seems every day to be so casually putting out disinformation about all kinds of not just inauguration crowds, but policy matters with real implications, I think reporters are struggling to find a voice where they can still be objective and call falsehood falsehood, which is objective, um, without sort of compromising their stand as being fair as well. So handlers have become more important. We now use spin. We know we're being spun too. What, what can we do as citizens with this information? Well, I think a lot of it is the awareness itself. Um, we know that politicians are trying to spin us. We actually know a good degree about how they're trying to spin us. This results sometimes in a certain cynicism. But, you know, I think most of us, when we watch pundits yakking away, we have a pretty good sense of who's being sincere and who's not. And so that sophistication is useful because it prevents us from taking politicians' words at face value. Well, you have some perspective. Looking back at previous administrations, we are less than halfway into the first 100 days of this new administration. Everything seems to be very raw, changing very rapidly. Is it likely that Trump's administration will appear more normal as time goes on? I think it probably is likely. Um, you know, I think it's been very hard to make confident predictions with Trump all along. Right. Uh, he defies them. And I think we will continue to see kind of wild, ill-considered decisions, continue to see a desire to just upend the furniture and do Smash things. the China, yeah. Yeah, because you're not supposed to do it that way. Sometimes that leads to good things. More often, it leads to mistakes. Um, but I do think people learn from mistakes and not to draw the parallels too closely, but when Ronald Reagan came in, there was an anxiety that was similar to what people are experiencing with Trump. Somebody who was seen as something of a wild man who really had no appetite for studying policy. I mean, he had broad ideological beliefs, but really didn't know policy detail at all. Uh, he talked about nuclear weapons and attacking the Russians in a cavalier way. So there was this great anxiety. And by the end, he still had his detractors, but we were seeing the end of the Cold War. So we don't know what the next four or eight years hold. And much as many of us are genuinely troubled by Trump, you have to keep open the possibility that it might not turn out as bad as we fear. So for people who want to get a handle, use the tools that are out there to sort out spin from facts. It's very tempting to turn to all these people who are doing fact-checking. I find often the fact-checking is almost as politicized as the stories that they're checking. Have we weaponized fact-checking in this modern era? Well, I wouldn't go quite that far, but I do think that fact-checking is not always the neutral arbitration that it purports to be. So what do we do? Well, I think one thing is to read multiple sources, um, to go beyond the headlines. I mean, it's amazing, especially you're on Facebook or Twitter. People will see a headline. 
See, speaking speaking of different sources, Jim has actually got me to read the National Review and the Weekly Standard, which right? Is, well, which and, I never used to do. And those are, I mean, you know, and, they, and I read Mother Jones and <laughs> think it's a good good publication. Yeah, and look, they can be barbed and, and opinionated, but they those are sources that are still kind of within, let's say, the reality based community. It's important, I think, also for readers, listeners to learn what is and isn't in that reality-based community. For example, the Daily Mail UK, people cite all the time. They traffic in gossip. The most, the tiniest shred can be the basis of a story that turns out to be totally untrue, hyped with a headline. Sites like Raw Story, Business Insider, there's all these sites that they're just kind of trafficking in quasi news. It's not fake news. Like they're not deliberately inventing falsehoods, but they're happy to run with and promote uh, frivolous stuff. And I think it's important to really pay attention to your sources, pay attention to your bylines. You know who actually wrote this story, um, and and that can help you separate out sort of credible from from dubious news. David Greenberg, author of Republic of Spin, an inside history of the American presidency. Thanks for coming up here and joining us. My pleasure. So, David. (laughs) I mean, mean, so, so, David. So, Richard, is everything spin now? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that there's less reporting in the media, that there's more commentary on certainly social media. And so you have this sense that we all are entitled to our own opinions and we're out there individually broadcasting them. And some people feel like they're entitled to their own facts. But what I like about David's perspective is that it is a perspective. It's got all that history to it that a lot of these trends go way, way back. It's not all a new phenomenon. I also liked at the end his emphasis on the fact that we still need real reporting, just having every piece of journalism you read be a take on something else that somebody else uncovered. We'd all be better served with more reporters spending more of their time out there digging up new information. Yes, and also a plug for history, a plug Mm -hmm. for people who go back and look at how today's times compare with earlier times. Because I think there's this conceit right now by both the supporters and the opponents of Donald Trump that this is something that's never happened before, that it's totally new. And yet there are a lot of things that are going on right now that have happened before. And there's certain things about Trump which are surprising and may not be normal, but they're not completely beyond the bounds of what we've seen before in terms of debates. Right. One of the things that I found good about the conversation is this idea of, he likes the word spin because it implies that we know that we're being spun. There's a certain almost playful sense that like they're spinning, but we're aware of it. So we can guard against it to some extent. I do worry that we are, that this can feed a kind of a cynicism where everybody just assumes, well, since nobody really knows what the facts are, I'm going to believe what I want to believe. And then you combine that with the, the, the bubblefication of our media spheres, you know, that we're all isolating ourselves in <laughs> That's our a weird bubblefication, bubblefication. Right? That's a good one. <laughs> it's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And thanks for joining us. Our producer, Miranda Schaefer, our social media guru and intern, Julia Beckett-Lewis, and the music's by Lou 
Lou Stravinsky. We're produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Thanks. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Joining us.